Dixie's musical podcast. Hey, everybody, it's Bax, and welcome back to a very special metal edition of Baxi's Musical Podcast. I'm excited about today because I'm going to be talking to a guy who I've had the opportunity to interview before, but this is the first time that we've sat down for a real long time to discuss his career. Jeff Plate from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Get a load of this. In 2019, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra grossed more than $47 million in just 30 days. This is a band whose popularity has grown to such a degree that over the last two and a half decades, it's now taken two touring bands to keep up with the demand. For example, this year, the TSO will be banging out 100 shows in 60 cities over the course of just 45 days. Think about that for a moment. The TSO is an incredible success story on nearly every level, despite usually limiting their touring schedule to the late fall and through the winter of every year. There has simply never been anything quite like them. Now, whether you're into the TSO or not isn't really the point. You have to, at the very least, respect the fact that they've touched a nerve and have become an annual tradition, an institution, and an insanely successful one at that, racking up more than $725 million in concert revenues since they started in 1996. And much of that has gone to local charities. Now, that is almost unheard of. But the musicians that make up the band come from a wide range of sources, rock, metal, thrash, progressive, classical, as well as New Age and Broadway, and a whole lot more. But the musicians involved in the TSO just don't wait around for things to kick off every year. Most of them stay incredibly busy throughout the whole year on their own projects. And that would include my guest today, one of the founding members of the TSO, drummer Jeff Plate. Now, Jeff Plate is not only the former drummer for metal bands like Sabotage and Metal Circus, he's also just released music with his latest project called All Terrain, whose first album, Mother's Day, was released last year. They also released a new single, and it is great, and a new album is on the way later in 2022. And as a guy who's played drums for virtually his whole life, it's always nice to talk things up with a guy who is significantly better than me. This is my conversation with Jeff Plate from Sabotage, TSO, Metal Circus, and All Terrain. It's Baxi's Musical Podcast. Michael. Jeff, how are you? I'm good. Look at that. Look at that <laughs> kid. God damn it. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's my baby. This is my office. This is where, <laughs> this is where I I do the damage. Oh my God! And, you, and oh, can you hear me? Okay, everything I, good? I can hear you fine. Thank you very much. For, first of all, thanks for getting in touch with me because you know I I uh, I've been playing drums very very badly since 1978, and to talk to a guy who actually knows what the hell he's doing and is really good at it and has made a career out of it is always a thrill. So the first thing I see is the kit, and I'm going, Oh my God, look at that! What a beautiful thing that is. Uh, I've come a long way <laughs> from beating on coffee cans and, and furniture to, uh, to what I've done in my career. It's, it's been quite a, it's been quite a trip. It's, it's been awesome. It's uh, it's funny. You're wearing a, a Peter Chris t-shirt because when I was a kid, 1978, my first show was, uh, was kiss at the Providence civic center. Oh my, God. <laughs> my parents took me for that one. And uh, all I wanted to do as a drummer was learn that that Peter Chris drum solo from from the uh, the Alive record, and only to realize, hey, you know, it really wasn't that complicated to begin with. <laughs> nope, it's just all triplets. <laughs> so, so when I was when I was a kid, I grew up in upstate New York, country. Uh, parent, parents loved country music. We watched Hee Haw every Saturday, you know, and <laughs> I'd watch uh, Soul Train and American Bandstand or whatever, whatever came along. In 74, I believe it was, I saw Chicago live at Caribou Ranch. Okay. They did this TV special on ABC and I fell in love with the band. It was like, I'm like 12 years old and wow, Chicago is my favorite band and Chicago seven was the first album I ever bought. And then 
you know, and I listen to that album now and it's like, I can't believe I was that young listening to this because that <laughs> album is, is so eclectic. It's all over the place. But the following year, I saw a commercial for the midnight special and this little <laughs> flash of kiss. And I talked my parents into letting me stay up. You know, of course I had to take the, the, the evening nap and then they woke me up at like 11 o'clock and said, okay, you can stay up and watch this. And I, I just remember sitting in front of the television with my general electric cassette recorder, <laughs> holding it up to the speaker. And I was just completely blown away. I mean, it was like, what the hell is going on here? And, but it was just awesome. There were like cartoon characters that came to life. They were like superheroes that came to life. And here I am, like I said, I, I'm like a country kid and here's Gene Simmons and Paul Hanley's Stanley's head is spinning around in circles and Peter Chris <laughs> rises up in the air. I was like, and that, that moment completely changed my life. Yeah. And here I am. So I represent, you know, he's that live album. I was just talking with, uh, uh, Don Jameson the other night about this and and that live album has always, you know, there's always a lot of conversation about a live one and this and that. How was it recorded and whatever. <laughs> it is one of the best heavy metal records ever. I, I don't care how it was recorded or, or what the deal is. But the playing is fantastic. The vocals are great. Peter Chris's drumming is so good. And as you mentioned earlier, the, the mm -hmm. drum solo, it's not the most complicated thing but it was perfect for what they were doing. You know, it was just Ace Freelay, all those solos, they're just timeless. And yeah, like I said, that, that changed my life that put me in orbit. And I, I think there were a lot of us back then that kind of felt the same way. And I, and I don't think, I don't think kids today have any real understanding of how enormous this band was. I mean, there was nothing like it. And you know, now many years later, kiss seems more, you know, cartoonish than anything else. But the reality is for like a, a young kid in the seventies, that was all anybody wanted to be was, was Ace Freely or Peter Chris. Well, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm in an area where I get three television channels. You know, the, the <laughs> most, the most musical excitement I get is when the, in the, the fair comes around every year and I go see Dr. Hook and the medicine show or blood and sweat and tears or whatever band was playing. <laughs> But to see something like that, I mean, granted, if you were in New York City, maybe you saw the New York Dolls and maybe you saw some other stuff that kind of, you know, similar. But but Kiss was just something that, you know, for for a rural kid with, you know, just dreams, you saw that he's like, oh, my God, my dream just came to life. That's it. <laughs> They're right there, you know, and it's just something how they 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 started out just as such a raw rock and roll metal band. What they became in, in years later, you know, say what you will about it. Th those guys are so successful in being in the business. You can't knock a thing that they have done to get where they are. Um, but I think in reference to how how we looked at it back then, you know, there was no there was no Internet really or anything like that. All these guys were a mystery. You know, when you when you right. got that record, you know, you stared at it and just wondered, you know, what do these cats really look like? And <laughs> all this and that, you know, Aerosmith and Bloister Call, all these bands, you didn't know who these people were. And and now as soon as a band comes out, you just Google them and there they are right there. There's no mystery anymore. But you know so what's it's... but you know what's cool about Kiss, which I and, and this is this is true and, and 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 it's good that I'm talking to you about this because I think TSO in a lot of ways also figured this out. That if you're gonna spend money on a concert whether it's 1975 or, you know, you know, 2022, if you're going to spend money on a concert, then you, there, there should be a level of showmanship. Kiss had showmanship. That was a whole, you know, stage show from everything from breathing fire to the pyrotechnics to everything about, you know, that show was all about the showmanship. TSO has done that too, where you're, you're doing like theme shows for, and, and, tours that are very compact two different bands playing simultaneously that's something that you guys definitely picked up on and really made a whole industry out of because sure. that's what people who are going to spend that kind of money on a show kind of deserve yes and and there is a book i think it's I'm, i think it's called nothing to lose and it was about kiss 
from the beginning up to the live album and just and just how hard they worked to get there. You know, they were almost dropped by the record label. They were tremendously in debt, all of the above. But those guys went out and and whether you you want to criticize their playing or not, they were tight, they were spot on, they put on a great show, they knew exactly what they were doing and they were making no bones about it. So with TSO, Paul O'Neill's Paul O'Neill's vision was everything that he grew up with, along with Broadway, along with storytelling, along with, you know, all of the above. And, you know, Paul's whole thing was more is more, more is better. <laughs> it's just <laughs> throw everything we can at the audience. And he wanted to assault the senses is what he would say. And I mean, honestly, if you go see a TSO show, depending on where you're sitting, you can't hardly keep up with everything that's going on. It's lighting, it's video, it's somebody's over here doing this and somebody's doing that. And, you know, I'm in the middle of doing my thing. And, you know, if you're up close, it's great, but you can't hardly keep up with it. And that <laughs> that's why a lot of people come see us twice yeah, a year. Absolutely. They want to see the same show. So, yeah, there, there are, you know, Paul always, Paul O'Neill always had great respect for the guys in KISS and everything they achieved because, here again, he's been in the business, was in the business for a long time and realized how hard it is to, to be successful. And yeah. We'll talk about Paul and, and TSO a little bit more in, in depth in a little bit, but uh, I, I wanted to, to tell you while, while I had you that I've been listening to uh, the All Terrain album, uh, Mother's Day, for a, a better part of a week. And it's a really, really good record. And then I was also given a, uh, a, an MP3 copy of the new single, Heavy Metal, the, the Sammy Hagar song from, from, uh, from 81. Yep. One, I think the version of it is fantastic. And then the second thing that I read was, I don't know of anyone else that has ever covered that song, which is, it, it's unfathomable to me because it's such a great rock song from, uh, from many years ago. I don't know of anybody else either. And, and that, wasn't, that wasn't my idea behind doing this. I, I had wanted to do something with this song for the longest time. I always loved it. That, that opening riff is just so awesome. Yeah. And Sammy Hagar is awesome. You know, I mean, <laughs> Sammy, Sammy's, he's the man, you know, he's, he's just great. But that song itself always just kind of resonated with me. And I remember I, w I was in metal church for 11 years right. <laughs> and I kept trying to get Kurt Vanderhoof. was like, dude, we got to do a cover of heavy metal for metal church. Come on. You know, and, and it just never happened. So, so fast forward to 2000. 19 i was putting together i had just started working on the el terrain material right and i was also doing a cover band called sun sonic and four of the members of el terrain were actually in sun sonic uh, myself tommy cook colin holloway and zach hamilton and we just started working up a version of heavy metal <laughs> and then COVID hit and then the whole thing just got obviously everything got got, got derailed and we, um, we, we put this, the cover band idea on the shelf. And I said, guys, me and Tommy Cook and Kevin McCarthy, the bass player, we had been working up some all-terrain stuff. And I said, look at guys, the cover thing ain't going to happen for a while. This, this, may, this may go on for a year. We don't know. Let's put that on the shelf. Let's focus everything on this all-terrain project and see what we can make of this. So... Once we got the album recorded, I was like, that version of heavy metal we were doing was, was too good to pass <laughs> up on. Let's, let's do something with this. And, and we started working on it. I took a part of Don Felder's heavy metal and added it, added it to, the, to the middle section. And then Bloister Cult also recorded a song called Heavy Metal, the Silver and Black. And there's a bridge section. That song didn't actually make it to the heavy metal movie, but there's a bridge section in that song, which was just, oh, this is killer. So I took that bridge section and that became our keyboard solo. And, you know, so I was just trying to incorporate everything that was around that song and that, in that movie and that idea into the song just to make it different. But thank you, man. I'm really, really proud of the, the way it came out. And my guys just, just played so well. They're, they're awesome. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's a remarkably good band. I mean, I mean, not, not it's a remarkably, cause I mean, you've been surrounding yourself with great musicians for a, a damn long time and listening to the, um, to, to mother's day as, as, as a drummer, I'm hearing you play, but 
there's so much more to that band than just the than just the drumming. There's a lot of great harmonies in it. The guitar is yep. great. James' keyboards are great. I mean, it just you did a really good job. And I know this is. I mean, to put an album together like this takes a lot of time and a lot of work. And my understanding is that this particular project had been kind of germinating for a long time, maybe even before 2019. Yep. So. Flashback to the late 80s, I was living in Boston and working with a guitarist named Matt Leff. Matt was a GIT grad, Guitar Institute of Technology, and he was just awesome. He had he was like he had auditioned for a deal at one point and came mm-hmm. very, very close to getting that gig. And, and he had some other gigs, Adam Bomb, I think he played in and, and Helix out of Canada. So Matt and I hooked up in the late 80s and started working on an original project. It's just a synchronicity. It's just so weird how things happen. But but Matt, when he was in Hollywood at GIT, met Zach Stevens, who was going to VIT. So these two guys, had they did a little project together, like a couple songs, and it was kind of like a school project. So once Matt and I started working up this material, he's like, I've got the singer for this project but he's in LA it's like well let's fly him to Boston so we flew Zach to Boston this was 1989 I believe but anyhow we 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 pick Zach up at the airport and we go to a place in Boston called the channel which was this huge rock club and it's like all right I just met this guy let's go out and have a beer and hang out a little bit so we go to this club and in sabotage is playing <laughs> First time I'd ever seen Sabotage. I really never even heard of them before. Zach Stevens had actually met them in California prior. So it was just weird. And then all of a sudden, but anyhow, this band was was named Wicked Witch. We did a demo. We we didn't really get any bites here in America. And, and honestly, we did not know enough about the foreign market to pursue that. Probably could have got a deal overseas, but so anyhow, you know, while this was all happening, Nirvana comes along, flattens the whole <laughs> metal hair metal scene, and and then Zach gets the gets the job singing for Sabotage. So he brings me into this. But the material that the three of us were working on was really good, and I used to record everything on cassette. I've got like 25 90-minute cassettes of us playing, you know. Sometimes it was a 12-second riff that Matt played that we just never did anything with. Sometimes it was almost a full song that just wasn't completed, but there was just some stuff there. I was like, this this material is just way too good to, to not do anything with. So fast forward, Matt Leff came down with cancer. He he got really sick. We lost him a couple few years ago. And Prior to that, I, I asked Matt, you know, would you mind if I took some of this material and and did something with it? You yeah. know, I, I've got some ideas that I think are really good. And he gave me the green light and, you know, just asked me to kind of keep him abreast of what, what was going on and what was developing, which I did. And and then we lost Matt before the, the final mm-hmm. version of the of the album. But but some of this there there are some pieces of music on this on the mother's day album where the songs were almost completed back in 1990 but just never were finished you know they didn't have the lyrics or they didn't have this section or that section uh some of the material on mother's day is completely original and we just kind of morphed the two ideas and two directions together and honestly it was all the same direction it was just it just needed to be completed that's an amazing story because I mean, you, I mean, you have to believe there are so many bands that have done that have stuff recorded, you know, never used. I mean, the, the joke is some of the best songs of all time, no one has ever heard, and this would be one of those situations where you have stuff to reach back towards, and then and to have the ability and the opportunity to use it again. I mean, that's a that's a stroke of great luck. Well, I tell you, I, I've been doing this for a long time. And I've been surrounded by really, really good players, really good writers and producers, and I've, I've been paying attention. And I just kind of got to a point a few years ago, I was like, you know, if I'm going to do something, I better get on the stick here. I ain't getting any younger. So Tommy Cook is a guitarist uh, in, in my area. I've known Tommy for 25 years. And he was the only guy that I could think of who had the right playing style and the right attitude 
to work with me trying to emulate what Matt Leff was playing, but also build on it. So once Tommy and I got together and started working on some stuff, it was like, wow, this is really good. Okay, let's call Kevin McCarthy. We'll bring him in. Now we're really, now we're starting to, this thing is starting to come together. And that's when I brought in Colin and Zach. So the five of us were working on the material here. And here again, this, this was basically myself and Tommy and Kevin down here in my studio, just jamming out stuff and, and going through things, recording ideas, blah, blah, blah. Uh, once we had some stuff recorded, pretty much the entire record, I, I, I've known Jane Mangini since 2000. And every year we see each other, it's like, ah, we should do something. <laughs> of course, everybody, everybody says that, you know? And so I called her up and I said, I'm going to send you a couple things and I just want to see what, what you think. And she said, Jeff, I love this stuff. And Jane, what she brought to this project, it made it more progressive. It made it more pop. It made it prettier in spots and it made it heavier in spots. You know, she just knew what to do with this stuff. And honestly, honestly, Jane, I, I would send Jane a song and she would send me back like 15 different ideas for each. It was like, okay, I got to sit here and sort this out. But <laughs> she always had so much great material to work with. It was, it was a real, real joy to do that. And yeah, I mean, that really rounded out our sound and yeah. I'm very, very proud of it. You, uh, you mentioned Sabotage uh, a little while ago and TSO has its real roots from that band. Tell me about uh, about Sabotage and, and, and your experience in that band and, and, and what it wound up creating. So as I mentioned, uh, Zach Stevens left my project in Boston and joined Sabotage. They were recording the Edge of Thorns record. This was 1992, I think, when they... But prior to that, I mean, I had kind of seen Sabotage on Headbangers Ball, mm -hmm. you know, Gutter Ballet and Hall of the Mountain King. There was... I knew about the band, but I didn't, I'd never really listened to them. Zach gets the gig with the band and Edge of Thorns comes out and me and Matt sat in a car one night with a beer or something sitting out in the, out in the parking lot of our apartment. And we just kind of listened to the album really loud. <laughs> it was like, wow, Zach sounds great. And Chris Oliva, holy cow, this guy is a monster. And so Zach, congrats, man. Good luck. You know, keep us keep us abreast of what's going on. So, so it wasn't long after that that Chris Oliva died in the car accident. Right. And at that point, I had well because the music scene changed so much in Boston. I moved back here to New York, and kind of rethinking my life. And I figured I'll give Zach a call and see how he's doing. See what he's doing. Is sabotage going to continue? Uh, would you be interested in revisiting the old stuff and maybe trying something else with that? And I gave Zach a call in early 1994, and he says, well, Jeff, they're going to continue, and they want to hire you. And I'm like, what? He said, yep, they've, they've seen the pictures. They've heard the demo. I've told them all about you. Steve Wachholz doesn't want to be the drummer anymore, and these guys want you in. And I was like, holy crap, I'm sitting in my apartment in Horses, New York, the last place I ever expected to get the call. And and I was in. So all that being involved, the band was in such a transition. You know, Zach was the new lead singer. John Oliva came back in as keyboardist, guitarist, and vocalist. Johnny Middleton was still there on bass. New, new guitarist and Alex Skolnick new drummer and me, it was really kind of a, a strange time for the band. And, and my whole approach to it was, you finally got the gig, you finally found your place. You know, this music fit me perfectly. And go down there and keep your mouth shut and don't make any mistakes <laughs> and don't give them a chance to, to want to get rid of you. And, and I've been there ever since, since 94. Yeah. When I when I first joined Sabotage and I went down to Tampa and met everybody, here again, there were there was a lot of trepidation about what was going on. You know, where was the band going to go? How was this going to work? But everybody was so cool and so nice, and I was really floored once I started digging. I mean, basically, I went down there in the spring of '94, and they said, "All right, go home and learn everything." 
because <laughs> we don't know what we're doing on this next tour. <laughs> and I was like, all right. So I came home and I quit my construction job and just started shedding on this stuff for hours a day. But then, then I realized Sabotage was much more than just a metal band. Th this band had some real dynamics, some real talent in this, the lyrics, the storytelling, the musicianship. It was all like, wow, I, I really had no idea these guys were, were this good. And yeah. it really inspired me even more. When Paul O'Neill decides, hey, I've got an idea. And, I, and I, I've had a chance to interview Paul a number of times. I mean, I've interviewed you before, but a number of times with Paul. First, first things first, man, that dude could talk. I was going to say, <laughs> he'd still be talking to you if you, if you let him. <laughs> if, he, if he were still alive today, he'd still be talking through it all. But when Paul comes up with this idea for, uh, for TSO, and you hear this idea, and he presents it to you know a, a number of you guys, what was your first reaction to it? Did you think it was like a great idea right away or did it seem far-fetched to you? Well, if you look back, I mean, when Paul came into Sabotage in, what was it, 86, I believe, for Hall of the Mountain King, you, you started hearing it right there. Yeah. You know, Prelude to Madness. I mean, that symphonic piece and it's like, all right, Paul's already in injecting some of these ideas, the gutter ballet record there is a lot of symphonic music there, a lot of drama in the lyrics and the, you know, the storytelling part of it. You look at the video for gutter, gutter ballet and when the crowds are gone, that looks like early TSO. Paul had this idea in his head in the eighties. This wasn't something new and him and John Oliva, when I joined Sabotage, him and John and I believe Bob Kinkle, uh, we're already working on some other Broadway-ish theater-type musicals and things. So Paul had all these influences that he was, you know, he was creating music and, and stuff like that. But this also was a part of Sabotage, too. I guess the, the, the strange thing about it was, for, for me, first of all, I'm the new guy. <laughs> so I'm just kind of like standing back and listening and watching and going, he wants to do a Christmas song? What? <laughs> what? I mean, even me, I thought this was kind of strange, but it fit into the story for Dead Winter Dead. It made perfect sense in the story. Him and John Oliva went around and around and around and around and around about this. And this was something that Paul, Paul had this idea for this, this mashup of these two songs, Carol of the Bells and uh, God Rest Your Merry Gentlemen. And he finally brought it to life. He finally had the, the, the platform and the story to, to, to put this thing in to, to make it work. And I'll be honest with you, when I heard the final version of it, I was like, holy cow, this is awesome. Yeah, but, right. it's, but it's, but it's a Christmas song, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how is this going to fly? And it was, like I said, I, I was new. I was, if they wanted my opinion, I gave it. Otherwise I just kind of kept my mouth shut. And, you know, th these are decisions that these guys need to make, but, Oddly enough, when that thing came out, when that album was, was released, that song just became this hit. And I remember I was in Tampa, Florida, and they were, Mason Dixon was the DJ down there. And uh, anyhow, they were playing the song. And, and one morning, you know, we all knew he was playing the song. So one, one morning, one morning I woke up, and of course I had been out the night before. And I turned on the radio and there's the song. It's like, oh wow, that's awesome. And then this 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 older woman calls in. She's like, God, I love that song. Who's that band? And and he said, Well, it's a band from the area here called Sabotage. And you know, they're kind of a metal band. They're kind of loud and whatever. I don't think the rest of the record is really much like this song. And and da 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 da. da. And I'm like, Wow, he really shouldn't say that. So I <laughs> so I called him, and he put me on the air. And we we talked for a second. And then off the air, he said, Jeff you guys have a hit song. And I called the office. Two minutes later, Paul calls me back. What did he say? Told him, <laughs> click. <laughs> and then it was on. Yeah. It was, it was, it was in Tampa. It was in New York city. And then it was spread, spread from there. Well, I mean, I remember, you know, when it came out too, there were people just talking about it. Not we weren't even playing it yet. Just, there was a lot of talk about, about that. You, you guys had, had done this song and you really needed to hear it. And it, took a while before it, it got on the air. 
but I've never heard buzz like that for a Christmas song. In 36 years of being in radio, I've never heard that before. But with you guys, it happened. And by the time you guys were able to turn this into a like a full stage show, you know, at what point do you say, all right, you know, I think we really got something here. It's, it's more where this is beyond just one one or two songs. This is this is now something that has a total life of its own. Well, that was pretty obvious just in that phone call I just mentioned. It's like, wow, this we've got something here. You know, Paul, you you nailed it. And but the ironic thing was Christmas Eve, Sarajevo twelve twenty four became this holiday hit in America. The record Dead Winter Dead did not resonate too well in America. You know, the, the fan base loved it and everything. But in Europe, the record took off. Yeah. So 96, Sabotage goes to Europe. And, and this, and then we even retooled the band even more. Chris Caffrey and Al Petrelli both came back into Sabotage on guitar, respectively. And we went to Europe to tour this record. And every venue we played was sold out. It was unbelievable. I mean, we got this thing going on in Europe. We're over there being metal rock stars. We got this holiday thing going on here in the States. So Paul, I mean, by design, by accident, whatever it was, we had kind of the best of both worlds. And so obviously once, once that song became, it was obvious to them that there was something here. This, this was the vehicle that Paul had been waiting for to launch his symphonic rock project like the ultimate project that he had been thinking of for years this was the vehicle for him to to get on and do it with and then trans-siberian orchestra was actually formed it was given a name um then we did the first record and and that was a huge hit and yeah all of a sudden you realize it's like wow there really is something here this is something else so when paul died there had to be some discussion okay what do we do i mean do we continue doing this and and you and, and Joel and the other guys in the band were, you know, obviously decided to, to carry on. And it was clearly the right decision. Uh, and I think Paul uh, is probably still talking about that decision right now. But, I mean, it was, it, was the right, it was the right choice. And the demand, I mean, I don't know how, how you can look at it in any other way. To me, it's a, a real supply and demand issue. You've got two bands playing and, and touring simultaneously. The crowds, uh, you know, keep coming to see these shows year after year because now it's an annual tradition. You know, people are seeing you guys on tour every single year. Was there any thought to maybe shutting it down and, and not continuing or did that not even cross your mind? Well, here again, this, this wasn't my decision to be made, but the whole time that TSO from the first album to, you know, that thing going gold, and then we're doing TV appearances. And then we do the second record. Well, the first album is platinum, multi-platinum. The second record was a big success. And when we started touring in 99, then you realized the whole thing is, is working. You know, I think it was 04 or 05 when we released uh, The Lost Christmas Eve and, and the song Wizards in Winter. Mm -hmm. And that kind of be that became a hit. It was on a Miller Lite commercial. Dude, we went from theaters to small arenas to all of a sudden selling out major arenas twice a day in the course of like five years. I can still remember staying, walking on the stage, I think it was Cleveland, and just looking around going, I can't believe what's, what's happening. It's unreal. <laughs> we got like four sold out shows in a row, two a day, you know? It's Amazing. unreal. Um, but Paul, the whole time this thing was developing and becoming what it was, <laughs> It really was obvious to us that we're becoming a tradition and that's that's a pretty heavy thing to say and think but, but it's it was, true it was reality yeah it's reality i mean there's like people some people cannot function during the holidays until they hear our music or see our show and <laughs> it's a family event for a lot of people paul for for years kept pushing the envelope making the show better always saying TSO is going to outlive us all. He used to always say that. TSO, we're going to pass this down to the next generation. 
you know, we, we would do autograph lines after every show. So that kid that came through in the year 2000, all of a sudden he's a young man in 2019 with his own family. It's like, oh my God, you know, it's just, it's going from generation to generation and you've seen these people grow up right in front of you. But his whole plan was to create something that was gonna be timeless and the man achieved it. So when we lost Paul, we had to keep it going. Yeah. You know, it's like this, he designed this to do this. <laughs> we didn't expect to do it without him, but that's the reality we're facing right now. And his family and the management team all just, you know, Paul would want it this way. He's, he's been working his whole life for this and we can't let him down. One of the, the things that I think is really incredible is while all of that stuff is, is true, the reality is that, that TSO over the years has maybe and I don't know the the exact numbers. I was reading uh, online about what the what what kind of you know revenues are generated from this organization. It's almost three quarters of a billion dollars you guys have have uh, amassed over the years. And what is amazing to me, and I have great respect for this, a good deal of that money has gone to charity. It's not yep. lining pockets. It's not you know. I mean, you guys are making money. Obviously, I mean, you have to do that. But there aren't a whole lot of tours out there that have charitable contributions on their tax forms. That is not the case with you guys. You've always been doing that over the years. And I think that's, yep. that's what separates you guys from anybody else. So the first ticket that we ever sold, that, that was Paul's deal right from the very first show. What $1 per ticket's going to a local charity. It's, it's helping, you know, these, these towns and cities invite us in to play. So this is the very least we can do to give something back. And Paul, Paul was really one of the most generous and sensitive people out there. I mean, he was well aware that he was all good. And he was well aware that a lot of people aren't, you know. <laughs> He's been in this industry for a long time. He's seen all the ups and downs and knows what comes along with it. But he's also been around the world enough to know that he was in a very good place he also felt, you know, if you're in the audience, you are contributing to helping somebody in your own backyard. So it's it's a win-win situation no matter what. So I think I think at this point it's it's roughly 18 million dollars over the years that we've given to to charity. So Amazing. Yeah. There was there was something just released on Polestar, I think over the last 40 years. We are like number 11 in in touring ticket sales or something like that. And it's not like you guys are charging $5,000 for floor seats. No. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's, a nuts. that's amazing. That, that's incredible to me. I mean, no offense. It's not a band in the world. I'd pay, I'd pay $5,000 for. No, me neither. I, no way. No yeah, way. It's too, it's, and you know what? You're paying $5,000 to see the band when they're past their prime. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, I, I get it. It's business and all this and that, you know, and that was the other thing too with Paul. He's like, this is a family show. I want the family to be able to afford to come see us. And he used to go toe to toe with, with the ticket sellers and people about the price of our tickets because he was, he demanded, no, this is not going to be crazy. We, we, these people are coming every year. They're bringing their families. Sometimes they're coming to multiple shows. They are buying merchandise. Uh, it's the holidays. And not that you have to be so generous. It is a business. But it's the holiday season. Yeah. So we're not going to nickel and dime our audience to a point where they can't afford to come see us anymore. And that's that's not going to happen. I, I know there's, there's not a lot you can talk about the upcoming tour because the dates have not been officially announced yet. But I've, I've had a chance to see, uh, you know, what's coming up. And... Um, there have to be two two bands to make this work because the amount of shows in the amount of cities in such a short period of time is amazing yep. to me that that this can that this can happen and that you do it successfully year after year and especially coming back after you know the pandemic the fact that you know this tour is going to go on and you know people are going to go for the very same reasons you're talking about what can you talk about this upcoming Tour. Is, is there anything you know, specifically different than before, or is it primarily the, primarily the same the same type of production? 
So if you've seen us, you know what you're getting. You know, if, if you haven't seen us, please do, because you, you're not going to see anything like this anywhere else. <laughs> it really is a show that stands on its own. Uh, you know, you talk about the, the, the two bands and the amount of shows that we do. To add on to the, to the, the question about carrying on TSL, you know, our management team has been with this project from the beginning. Yeah. So everybody, myself, Chris Caffrey, Al Petrelli, Johnny Middleton, we, we were here from the very beginning of this. There's a lot of people here that know what we're doing. And Paul did a very, very good job of surrounding himself with great people. And the road crew that, that puts this show up and takes it down, unreal. I mean, that's, they are literally the stars of the show because, you know, we're going to go from Worcester, two shows in Worcester to uh, two shows in Manchester. Mm -hmm. It'll be up, it'll be up and running and ready for the matinee early. <laughs> you know, it's, it's unbelievable, but these guys are fantastic in, and it is, it is no small feat just to get this thing out of the parking lot, you know, prior to even playing a show, just getting through rehearsals, the amount of work and investment that goes into it. It's, it's amazing. I keep looking at your, at your drum set behind you. And I, I keep thinking of, uh, of mine, uh, every time I've taken it down, it's like the worst sense of dread I have. It's going to take me three or four <laughs> days to put it back the way I want it the right way. And I, and I, <laughs> during the pandemic, I, I kind of stopped playing because my, my wife is a, is a teacher and she was teaching from home for a while. <laughs> And so I didn't, I didn't play. I just, you know, kind of kept them, you know, I moved them from one room to another. And I still, to this day, I haven't gotten it back to the way, the way I like. And, and, uh, and, and the fact that, you know, here you are, you're going into, into this tour every, every year. You're just, all you got to do down, do is, 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 is sit on the, on the, on the, on the, on the drum throne and everything is pretty much the way you want it. Maybe you adjust a cymbal here or there, but it, it's perfect every time. Every drummer that's not in that position envies the shit out of that because that's the best part. I, I tell you, man, I, my, my drum techs that I've had over the years are, are just fantastic. And, yeah, if you've seen my kit, it's, it's pretty damn cool. It's, <laughs> it's pretty very damn cool. cool. It is it cool. Is, it's, a, it's a big kit. Uh, my techs take just as much pride in it as I do. You know, they're, they're out there looking at it, make sure all the symbols are even, is everything shining? You know? <laughs> they, they really make sure it looks and sounds great. But here again, under the schedule that we're under, if I don't have somebody like that, I'm in trouble. Sure. You know, I can literally go up there and sit down and play a show really without adjusting anything for the most part. But I always do. I mean, it's just what we do is, you know, well, this is tipped a little, this is blah, 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 whatever. Um, but it is, it is something else to, uh, to be, to get to the point where I don't have to do that. It's awesome. It really is. It, it, people don't realize how, how truly important that is. I played, I, I sat in with a band a couple of years ago uh, and the, the drummer said, Oh yeah, you know, come on up and play. And his, uh, his, he had very short legs and I'm not a real tall guy, but this guy was like much shorter than I was. And I played like two songs. And by the end of it, my legs were like so cramped because I didn't adjust where he was sitting because I didn't want to screw things up for him. And my, I walked out of there. I'm limping. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm walking out of here. Like I'm a 90 year old man. But it, 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 that shows you what kind of difference just like a fraction of an inch can, can do. Sure. It could totally screw you up. Sure. This kit here, uh, I've been endorsed by Pearl since 98, Zildjian, I, the early 2000s, and uh, Vader drumsticks. When I lived in Boston, I, I've been using Vader since the mid-80s. Love them. Great sticks. But but these these drums pretty much sit here. <laughs> I, I have another kit, a, a white white uh, master's kit. Yeah. That if I'm going to play locally, that's, that's the one I'll take out. So to your point, yeah, once you get this thing set the way you want it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter how hard you try to set it up exactly the same. It never is. It's never the same. Nope. It's never the same. And <laughs> it's just a minor thing here or there. But, but if if you uh, if you know you know you know if you if you played long enough, I'm sure the same is for guitar players and etc. Yeah. But as far as the drums, there are just so many things, especially on a big kit, that just need to be exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I know we don't have a whole lot of a uh, whole lot of time. When we were setting this up, you were telling me about uh, how you you're, you you teach uh, yeah. as well. And I mean, I can't even imagine you know being like a like the like the twelve year old kid that I was when I went to, to to my first set of lessons, and all of a sudden it's Jeff Plate as my is my teacher. I mean that that's that's freaking cool. The guy the guy I had was this like this miserable elderly jazz. Uh, player that just wanted to focus on Rademacuse and paradiddles, and you know, I just wanted to be John Bonham at the time. So, you know, it, I, I mean, I should have learned that stuff. I didn't learn it as well as I I could, but to have Jeff played as a teacher would have been unbelievable. Well, my my platform certainly doesn't hurt, you know. <laughs> and and when we were, well, when I started teaching, but especially during COVID, when I was picking up students, everything was online, you know. So. There's actually some students just this week that I am meeting for the first time. I've been teaching them for probably two years. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so it's like, hey, folks, I think we're good. Why don't you come on up? Come on up for a lesson. Let's talk in person. <laughs> I'll show you the drum room. And, you know, but a lot of these kids, too, they get even the parents. They kind of know about TSO, but they don't really know what it is. You know, they've seen some video and st stuff like that. So, okay. We're, we're, we're coming around town. Why don't you guys come out and see the show? They're just completely floored. You know, they, they can't believe that I'm that dude that lives in the country in Horseheads, <laughs> New York, and he's up there and there's flames and lasers and things. You know, it's like <laughs> the show itself, even, even regardless of me, the show itself is enough to blow anybody away. But the fact that, you know, it's, it's a great way to make a good impression on them and especially the young ones. It's like, look, you just gotta, you gotta put your nose to the grindstone and practice and work at this. That's you it. Never know what's gonna happen. So, but I, I try to give. Talking about your old teacher, I, <laughs> I try to. Okay, here's the deal. You tell me what you want to learn, and we'll learn it. But you're gonna learn what I want to teach you too. So there's a give and a take there. Uh, I, I make sure that all my students students learn how to read. Yep. Because it just it just opens everything up. Then they start understanding music. They they can, you know, get a drum tab for a song and you know read the song and play it correctly and that kind of thing. But there's also a lot of stuff too where, you know, the kid wants to learn how to play a certain song and sometimes I'll bring the song up. There's one cool thing about young students now is the music they listen to. I have no clue. <laughs> you know, they'll they'll bring up this band and I'll Google it or bring them up on YouTube. It's like, I've never heard of these guys. And they got like 8 million views. It's yeah. unreal. Yeah. But there, there is some, there is some drumming out there that is just mind blowing. There's so many good players. One of the great things about YouTube. I mean, uh, yeah, I just, yeah, I look at players I would never have known about um, that just that yep. they're unbelievably talented guys. It's real creative drumming. It's not just, especially on the jazz side. I mean, some of these guys are un yeah. unreal. The jazz, the jazz uh, element is fascinating. I mean, you know, I'm I'm meat and potatoes rock and roll metal guy. Yeah, and and I've I've got some chops and finesse and this and that. But some of these guys have such feel in in touch and dynamic. It really makes me want to like cry. It's like, <laughs> why, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I work on this years ago? But there there is some pro progressive bands out there and drummers too that it's like oh my god yeah it makes me go all right after i'm done with this kid's lesson i need to take a lesson you know i gotta sit down and start practicing because there really is some fascinating stuff going on out there but and the amount of young people <laughs> that are actually very good that's another thing it's like how bad <laughs> was it always like this i don't know it's crazy it's unbelievable. I mean, yeah, I, I, I watched like, well, you know, even like Neil Peart, Neil Peart, uh, you know, took lessons from Freddie Gruber to at like towards the middle part of his career, just to, sure. just to learn to kind of, you, you get into a pocket and you keep kind of doing what you know, yeah. but not experiencing the idea that there's a whole other world of, of musicianship that you may not have thought of on your own. That when that was a pretty important thing for him to do. And I would yep. imagine every drummer you know, must kind of think, well, there's, there, maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's an easier way. Maybe there's a harder way, but I'll learn more by learning it. Yeah. I mean, a friend of mine told me years ago, learn everything you can and forget it. 
And it's <laughs> and at some point in your life, you'll you'll pull that rabbit out of your hat, whether you know it or not. You know, with yep. learning learning uh, Latin music and jazz and you know all the rudiments and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, if you're playing ACDC, you're you're really not going to utilize a lot of that. But you may stumble into something else where all of a sudden something pops out and wow, they're not now I can apply that there. I uh I mean when I grew up, Neil Pert, we were talking about Peter Chris, Kiss was it for me for probably a couple of years. And yeah. that's really got me into drumming. Uh but then I think it was what was it, 76, 70, whatever year 2112 came out. Um Yeah. All right. I think it was 76, maybe. 76, I, I believe. I mean, that just like I, I was just starting to figure out drumming. And then all of a sudden you listen to 2112. It's like, yep, that's where I want to go right there. <laughs> so Neil Pert just kind of opened up the door to everything else. And I, I had an older friend who was a guitar player. He turned me on to, you know, Return to Forever, mm-hmm. um, Jean-Luc Pani, all this kind of progressive jazz fusion stuff. Steve Smith on drums, fresh out of Berkeley. Amazing, awesome. amazing drummer. Awesome I, stuff. I, I I could watch Steve Smith play forever. You know, guys like uh, you know JoJo Mayer or Benny Greb. I mean, those guys are like ridiculous. I think. Yeah, probably probably my my favorite cat out there now is Todd Zuckerman. Oh yeah, yeah. With sticks. Um. So it was ninety. I think it was ninety eight. They Sticks came back out, Return to Paradise tour. I remember Kansas was the opener, so it was a great bill. But the Panazzo had had recently passed, so here comes Sticks with this new drummer, and <laughs> I was just completely floored by how aggressive he was playing. I was like honestly sitting there going, I can't believe these guys are letting this guy play like this. <laughs> He's all over the place, but yeah. it's so musical and it's so. It fits the music. It just gave it a kick. And from then on, I, I've, I've met Todd several times and we converse every once in a while, but he's just one of those guys that can play pretty much anything. Yep. He and, sure can. And really well. Yeah. Really well. So. Well, Jeff, uh, I appreciate all the time you give me today. It's great to talk to you. The uh, All Terrain, yeah. Mother's Day, great record. Uh, check out the single, uh, <laughs> Heavy Metal, the uh, Sammy Hagar song, so freaking good. Great to talk to you, and and uh, I know TSO is coming through our area in the fall. I'm sure those dates will be announced, to, you know, rel- relatively soon. But it's it's great to talk to you again. Thank you, and I just want to uh, put out there we've Alter Rain Two is basically finished. Um, I'm just getting mixes right now, waiting for the artwork, and we're hoping that probably early next spring, maybe February, early March, we'll be able to get the next record out. But it's more of the same. Hopefully, it's. Hopefully we've taken a step in the right direction, but uh, it's really, really a, a cool project. We're all proud of it, and I'm glad people are digging it. So That's great. Thank, thanks for the good words, man. You bet. Appreciate it. Good seeing you. Yep, take take care. care. The TSO will be announcing the dates of their 2020 tour in mid-September, and as always, they put on a hell of a show at really manageable prices. And again, be sure to check out Mother's Day by All Terrain as well. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, feel free to share it, rate it, subscribe to it, tell all your friends about it. You can email me at Bax at rock102.com. I would love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.